Chapter Sixteen of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy, by Ruth Putnam. Chapter Sixteen, Guelder. 1473. The affairs of the little duchy of Guelder were among the matters urgently demanding the attention of the Duke of Burgundy at the close of his campaign in France. The circumstances of the long-standing quarrel between Duke Arnold and his unscrupulous son Adolf were a scandal throughout Europe. In 1463, a seeming reconciliation of the parties had not only been effected but celebrated in the town of Grave by a pleasant family festival, from whose gaieties the elder duke, fatigued, retired at an early hour. Scarcely was he in bed when he was roused rudely and carried off half-clad to a dungeon in the castle of Bourin by the order of his son, who superintended the abduction in person, and then became Duke Regnant. For over six years the old man languished in prison, actually taunted from time to time, it is said, by Duke Adolf himself. Indignant remonstrances against this conduct were heard from various quarters, and were all alike unheeded by the young duke, until Charles of Burgundy interfered and ordered him to bring his father to his presence, and to submit the dispute to his arbitration. Charles was too near and too powerful a neighbor to be disregarded, and his peremptory invitation was accepted. Pending the decision, the two dukes were forced to be guests in his court, under a strict surveillance, which amounted to an arrest. The first suggestion made by Charles was for a compromise between father and son. Let Duke Arnold retain the nominal sovereignty in Guelda, actual possession of one town, and a fair income, while to Adolf be ceded the full power of administration. The latter was emphatic in his refusal to consider the proposition. Rather would I prefer to see my father thrown into a well and to follow him thither than to agree to such terms. He has been sovereign duke for forty-four years. It is my turn now to reign. Arnold thought it would be a simple feat to fight out the dispute. I saw them both several times in the duke's apartment and in the council chamber when they pleaded each his own cause. I saw the old man offer a gauge of battle to his son. The senior belonged to the disappearing age of chivalry. A trial of arms seemed to him an easy and knightly fashion of ending his differences with his importunate heir. No settlement was effected before the French expedition, but Charles was not disposed to let the matter slip from his control. And when he proceeded to Amiens, the two dukes, still under restraint, were obliged to follow in his train. At a leisure moment Charles intended to force them to accept his arbitration as final. Before that moment arrived, the more agile of the two plaintiffs, Adolf, 
succeeded in eluding surveillance and escaping from the camp at Wiley. He made his way successfully to Namur, disguised as a Franciscan monk. Then, at the ferry, he gave a florin when a penny would have sufficed. The liberality, inconsistent with his assumed role, aroused suspicion and led to the detection of his rank and identity. He was stayed in his flight and imprisoned in the castle of Namur to await a decision on his case by his self-constituted judge. This was not pronounced until the summer of 1473. By that time Charles was resolved on another course of action than that of adjusting a family dispute in the capacity of puissant, impartial, and friendly neighbor. Adolf's behavior toward his father had been extraordinarily brutal and outrageous. Public comment had been excited to a wide degree. It was not an affair to be dealt with lightly by Duke Charles. The young Duchess of Guelder was Catherine of Bourbon, sister to the late Duchess of Burgundy, and Adolf himself was Chevalier of the Golden Fleece. In consideration of these links of family and knightly brotherhood, Charles desired that the case should be tried with all formality. On May 3rd, 1473, an assembly of the order was held at Valenciennes, and the knights were asked to pass upon the conduct of their delinquent fellow, who was permitted to present his own brief through an attorney, but was detained in his own person at Namur. The innocence or guilt of his prisoner was no longer the chief point of interest as far as the Duke of Burgundy was concerned. The latter had made an excellent bargain on his own behalf with the moribund Duke of Guelda, who had signed, December 1472, a document wherein he sold to Charles all his administrative rights in Guelder and Zutphen for 92,000 florins, in consideration of Arnold's enjoying a life interest in half of the revenue of his ancient duchy. That clause soon lost its significance. The old man's life ceased in March 1473, and by virtue of the contract Charles proposed to enter into full possession of his estates, setting aside not only Adolf, whom he was ready to pronounce an outlawed criminal, quite beyond the pale of society, but that Adolf's innocent eight-year-old heir, Charles, whose hereditary claims had also been ignored by his grandfather. Before the knights of the order, as a final court, were rehearsed all the circumstances of the old family quarrel and of the late commercial transaction. Their verdict was the one desired by their chief. It was proven to their entire satisfaction that Arnold's sale of the Duchy of Guelder and Zutphen was a legitimate proceeding, and that the deed executed by him was a perfect and valid instrument whereby Charles of Burgundy was duly empowered to enjoy all the revenues of and to exert authority in his new duchy at his pleasure. As to Duke Adolf, he was condemned by this tribunal of his peers to life imprisonment as punishment for his unfilial and unjustifiable cruelty toward Arnold, late Duke of Guelda. Adolf's protests were stifled by his prison bars, 
but the people of Gwelder were by no means disposed to accept unquestioned this deed of transfer, made when the two parties to the conveyance were in very unequal conditions of freedom. In order to convince them of the justice of his pretensions, Charles levied a force almost as efficient as his army of the preceding summer, and fell upon Gwelder. A truce, a triple compact with France and England, had recently been renewed, so that for the moment his hands were free from complications, an event commented upon by Sir John Paston, as follows. April 16th, 1473, Canterbury. As for tidings, there was a truce taken at Brussels about the 16th day of March last, between the Duke of Burgoyne and the Friends King's ambassadors and Master William Atcliffe for the King here, which is a peace be land and be water till the first day of April, now next coming between France and England, and also the Duke's lawns. God hold it forever." the writer had recently been in Charles' court. Writing from Calais in February, he says, As for tidings here, there be but few, save that the Duke of Burgundy and my lady his wife fareth well. I was with them on Thursday last past at Gaunt. The Duke of Burgundy was not the only pretender to the vacated sovereignty of Guelder. The Duke of Juliet, was also inclined to urge his cause, were Adolf's family to be set aside. At the sight of Burgundian puissance, however, he was ready to be convinced, and accepted twenty-four thousand florins for his acquiescence in the righteousness of the accession. Several of the cities manifested opposition to Charles, but yielded one after another. In Nimwigan, long hostile to Duke Arnold, there was a determined effort to support little Charles of Guelder, who, with his sister, was in that city. The child made a pretty show on his little pony, and there were many declarations of devotion to his cause as he was put forward to excite sympathy. For three weeks the town held on in his name. The resistance to the Burgundian troops was sturdy, when the gates gave way before their attacks, the burghers defended the broken walls. Six hundred English archers were repulsed from an assault with such sudden energy that they left their banners sticking in the very breaches they thought they had won, fine prizes for the triumphant citizens. But the game was unequal, and the combatants, convinced that discretion was the better part of valor, at last accepted the Duke of Cleve as a mediator with their would-be sovereign. On July 19th, the long civic procession headed by the burgomasters, wearing neither hats nor shoes, marched to the Duke of Burgundy with a prayer for pardon on their lips. The leaders of the opposition to his accession were delivered over to the mercy of the victor. The garrison were accorded their lives, and a tax was imposed on the city to indemnify the duke for his needless trouble. And Guelder, 
was added de facto to the list of Burgundian ducal titles. In the various state papers presently issued by the new ruler, the mention of the circumstance of his accession to the sovereignty was simple and straightforward, as in a certain document appointing Olivier de la Marche to be treasurer. The patent bears the date of August 18th, and was one of the earliest issued by Charles in this new capacity. As by the date of the late Messier Arnold, in his life Duke of Guelderland, these counties and duchy have lapsed to me, and by the same token the offices of the land have escheated to our disposition, and among others the office of master of the monies of those countships, using the rights, etc., escheated to me, and in consideration of the good and agreeable services already rendered and continually rendered by our knight, etc., Olivier de la Marche, having full confidence in his sense, loyalty, probity, and good diligence, for these causes and others we entrust the office of master and overseer of monies of the land of Guelda to him with all the rights, duties, and privileges thereto pertaining. In testimony of this we have set our seal to these papers. Done in our city of Nimwegen, August 18th, 1473, thus signed by Messire Le Duc. On the back of this document was written, Today, November 3rd, 1473, Messire Olivier de la Marche took the oath of office of master and overseer of the land and duchy of Guelder. The charge of the ducal children, Charles and Philippa, was entrusted to the duke, who in his turn deputed Margaret of York to supervise their education. In a comparatively brief time agitation in behalf of the disinherited heir ceased and imperial ratification alone was required to stamp the territory as a legal fraction of the Burgundian domains. Under the circumstances, the minor heirs were the emperor's wards, and it was his express duty to look to their interests. But Frederick III showed no disposition to assert himself as their champion. On the contrary, the embassy that arrived from his court on August 14th was charged with felicitations to his dear friend Charles of Burgundy for his acquisition, and with assurances that the requisite investiture into his dignities should be given by his imperial hand at the Duke's pleasure. Communication between Frederick and Charles had been intermittently frequent during the past three years, and one subject of their letters was probably a reason why Charles had been willing to abandon a losing game in France to give another bias to his thoughts. He was lured on by the bait of certain prospects, varying in their definite form indeed, but full of promise that he might be enabled eventually to confer with Louis Eleventh, from a better vantage ground than his position as first peer of France. The story of these hopes now becomes the story of Charles of Burgundy. When Sigismund of Austria completed his mortgage in 1469 
at Saint-Omer, and returned home, as already stated, he was fired with zeal to divert some of the dazzling Burgundian wealth into the empty imperial coffers. An alliance between Mary of Burgundy and the young Archduke Maximilian seemed to him the most advantageous matrimonial bargain possible for the emperor's heir. He urged it upon his cousin with all the eloquence he possessed, and was lavish in his offers to be mediator between him and his new friend Charles. Frederick was impressed by Sigismund's enthusiastic exposition of the advantages of the match, and little time elapsed before his ambassador brought formal proposals to Charles for the alliance. The duke received the advances complacently, and returned propositions significant of his personal ambitions. As early as May 1470, his instructions to certain envoys sent to the intermediary, Sigismund, are plain. In unequivocal terms, his daughter's hand is made contingent on his own election as King of the Romans, that shadowy royalty which veiled the approach to the imperial throne. Item. And in regard to the said marriage, the ambassador shall inform Monsignor of Austria that since his departure from Hesden, certain people have talked to Monsignor about this marriage and mentioned that, in return, the emperor would be willing to grant to Monsignor the crown and the government of the kingdom of the Romans, with the stipulation that Monsignor arrived at the empire by the good pleasure of the emperor or by his death, would in his turn procure the said crown of the Romans for his son-in-law. The result will be that the empire will be continued in the person of the emperor's son and his descendants. Item. They shall tell him about a meeting between the imperial and ducal ambassadors, at which meeting there was some talk of making a kingdom out of certain lands of Monsignor, and joining these to an imperial vicariate of all the lands and principalities lying along the Rhine. In the following paragraphs of this instruction, Charles directs his envoys to make it clear to Monsignor of Austria, Sigismund, that the Duke's interest in the plan does not spring from avarice or ambition. He is purely actuated by a yearning to employ his time and his strength for God's service and for the defense of the faith while still in his prime. Should the Emperor refuse to approve the Duke's nomination as King of the Romans, the ambassadors are instructed to say that they are not empowered to proceed with the marriage negotiations without first referring to their chief they must ask leave to return with their report. If Sigismund should take it on himself to sound the emperor again about his sentiments, the envoys might await the result of his investigations. He was to be assured that while Charles was resolved to hold back until he was fully satisfied on this point, if it were once ceded, he would interpose no further delay in the celebration of the nuptials. He must know, however just what power and revenue the emperor would attach to the proposed title. He was not willing to accept it without emoluments. 
his present financial burdens were very heavy, etc. The concluding terms of the instructions had reference to the marriage settlements. A kingdom of his own was not the Duke's dream at this stage of Burgundo-Austrian negotiations. The title that Charles desired primarily was King of the Romans, one empty of substantial sovereign power, but rich with promise of the all-embracing imperial dignity. Significant is the intimation that after this preliminary title was conferred, its wearer would be glad to have Frederick step aside voluntarily. A resignation would be as efficient as death in making room for his appointed successor. Frederick III had indeed intimated occasionally that a life of meditation would suit his tastes better than the imperial throne, but he seems in no wise to have been tempted by the offer made by Charles to relieve him of his onerous duties, and then to pass on the office to his son. At any rate, the emperor rejected the opportunity to enjoy an irresponsible ease. His answer to the duke was that he did not exercise sufficient influence over his electors to ensure their accepting his nominee as successor to the imperium. There was, however, one honor that lay wholly within his gift. If Charles desired higher rank, the emperor would be quite willing to erect his territories into a realm and to create him monarch of his own agglomerated possessions, welded into a new unity. This proposition wounded Charles keenly. He assured Sigismund, January fifteenth, 1471, that his nomination as King of the Romans would never have occurred to him spontaneously. He had been assured that it was a darling project of the Emperor, and he had simply been willing to please him, etc. As to a kingdom of his own, he refused the proposition with actual disdain. Then various suitors for the hand of Mary of Burgundy appeared on the scene successively. To Nicholas of Calabria, Duke of Lorraine, grandson of old King René of Anjou, she was formally betrothed. My cousin, since it is the pleasure of my very redoubtable senior and father, I promise you that, you being alive, I will take none other than you, and I promise to take you when God permits it. So wrote Mary with her own hand, on June thirteenth, 1472, at Mans. On December third, she declared all such pledges revoked as though they never had been made, and Nicholas, too, formally renounced his pretensions to her hand. There were several moments when Charles of France had appeared to be very near acceptance as Mary's husband, and several other princes seemed eligible suitors. Doubtless her father found his daughter very valuable as a means of attracting friendship. Doubtless, too, as Comines says, he was not anxious to introduce any son-in-law into his family. His fortieth year was only completed in 1473, and he was by no means ready to range himself as an ancestor. At successive times the negotiations between Charles and Frederick were ruptured only to be renewed on some slightly different basis. Threaded together they made a story fraught with interest for Louis Eleventh, and one that very probably he had an opportunity to hear. 
up to August, 1472, it is a safe inference that Philip de Comines was fully cognizant of the propositions and counter-propositions, the understandings and misunderstandings, the private letters of, as well as the interviews with, the accredited Austrian envoys that appeared at one Burgundian camp after another. Probably there was nothing more valuable in the store of learning carried by the astute historian from his first patron to his second than all this fund of confidential miscellany. It seems a fair surmise that Louis Eleventh enjoyed immensely the delightful private view into his rival's dreams, the disappointments and rehabilitation of his shattered visions. The relation would have made him not only fully aware of the reasons why Charles was diverted from his hot pursuit of the Somme towns, but thoroughly informed as to the great obstacles lying in the path which the Duke hoped to travel. Naturally, the King was quite willing to rest assured that ruin was inevitable. If his rival were disposed to wreck himself rashly on German shoals, the King was equally disposed to be an acquiescent onlooker and to spare his own powder. On his part, Charles was wholly unconscious of the extent of his loss of prestige within the French realm in 1472. There had been other periods when the king had appeared triumphant over his aspiring nobles, only to be again checked by their alliance. In the radical change undergone by the feudatories after Guillaume's death and Brittany's reconciliation, there was, however, no opening left for the Duke of Burgundy's re-entry as a French political leader. It was this definite cessation of his importance that Charles failed to recognize. Confident that his star was rising in the east, he did not note the significance of its setting in the west. Thereupon the situation was, Charles believing that his plans were his own secret, versus Louis, fully advised of those plans and alert to all incidents of the past, present, and future, in a fashion impossible to the Duke in his absorbed contemplation of his own prospects, blocking the scope of his view. With the Emperor's congratulations at the Duke's accession to Gelder, and his offers to invest him with the title, were coupled intimations that it was an opportune moment to resume consideration of an alliance between the Archduke Maximilian and Mary of Burgundy. The Duke accepted the new overtures, and Rudolf de Soltz and Peter von Hagenbach proceeded to the Burgundian and Austrian courts, respectively, as confidential envoys to discuss the marriage. Charles was far more gracious to de Soule than he had been to the last imperial messenger, the Abbe de Casanova, who had restricted his proposals to Mary's fortunes and ignored her father's. The Duke had no intention of permitting any conference to proceed on that line. He was explicit as to his requisitions. De Soule was surprised by a gift of ten thousand florins, explained by the phrase, because Monsignor recognized the love and affection borne him by the said Count. That was a simple retainer. Other benefits, offices, and estates were conferred to take effect on the day when Monsignor was named King of the Romans. 
The instructions to Hagenbach were definite, covering the ground of those previously mentioned, issued in 1470. He was, however, especially enjoined to assure Frederick that the Duke did not require his abdication. He would be content to step into the shoes naturally vacated by his death. The final suggestion resulting from these parleyings was that an interview between the two principals would be far more satisfactory than any further interchange of messages. It was not only a propitious time for a conference, but it was necessary. The ceremony of investiture of the Duke into his latest acquired fief made it evidently imperative that he should visit the Emperor, and to preparations for that event Charles turned his attention, now absolutely confident that the outcome must be to his satisfaction. He had as little comprehension of the character of the man with whom he was to deal as he had of Louis XI. The choice of a place caused some difficulty, each prince preferring a locality near his own frontier. Metz was selected and abandoned on account of an epidemic. Finally, Treves was appointed for the important occasion, and Frederick sent official invitations to the princes of the empire to follow him thither in October. Before Charles arrived at the rendezvous, another event had occurred that had an important bearing on his fortunes. Nicholas, Duke of Lorraine, died July 27th, leaving no direct heir. He had been relinquished as a son-in-law, but the geographical position of his duchy made the question of its sovereignty all-important to Charles of Burgundy. If it could be under his own control, how convenient for the passage of his troops from Luxembourg to the south. The taste for duchies, like many another, can grow by what it feeds upon. Prepared to set out for his journey to Treves, Charles hastened his movements and proceeded to Metz with an escort so large that it had a formidable aspect to the city fathers. Whether they feared that their free city was too tempting a base for attack on Lorraine or not, the magistrates yet found it expedient to keep the Burgundian thousands without their walls. The emperor, too, was on his way to Treves. Many of his suite were occupying quarters in Metz. Room might be found for Charles and his immediate retainers, indeed, but the troops must make themselves as comfortable as possible outside the gates. So said the burgomaster, and Charles was forced to yield, and he made a splendid entry into the town under the prescribed conditions. His own paraphernalia had been forwarded from Antwerp, so that there should be an abundance of plate, tapestry, etc., to grace his temporary quarters, and the forests of Luxembourg had been scoured to secure game for the banquets. It was all very fine, but Charles was not in a humor to be pleased. He was annoyed about his troops. Very probably he had intended leaving a portion at Metz ready to be available in Lorraine if occasion offered. He cut short his stay in the town and marched on with his imposing escort to Treves, whence he hoped to march out again a greater personage than any Duke of Burgundy had ever been. End of chapter 16